<clears throat> Thanks, Tracy. Does God love you and have a wonderful plan for your life? Yes. Yes, he does. Um, God has a plan for every part of your life. He has a plan for where you would live, where you would be born and where you would grow up. He has a plan for uh, what kind of education you would get, where you would go to school and what kind of degree you would get, if you would go to school and get a degree at all. He has a plan for what kind of job you're going to have. He's got a plan for what kind of uh, sports you're going to play or what kind of musical instrument you're going to play. He's got a plan for who's going to be your spouse. Uh, if you're going to get married at all, he's got a plan for everything. He's got a plan for all of it. Uh, part of our liturgy, and we try very hard uh, to craft our liturgies in such a way that they are, they are part of a theme. And so if you are following the liturgies carefully, you'll notice that, that the theme, of course, uh, for today is this relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, right? And in the liturgy, we, uh, we saw a quote from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, In him we were also chosen. Now, this is about the doctrine of election and predestination. We're not going to get into that so much this morning. However, in this context, this is what the verse says. In him you were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan, listen to this, of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose and will. God works out everything according to his purpose and will. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He doesn't just say God works out the big stuff, okay? It's not just the big things. Like Tracy prayed for some big things. Like what's going on in Ukraine with Russia and China and North Korea. These are big things. These are geopolitical things that are going on. And, and Paul is not saying that God is sovereign over all of those things, working them out in conformity with his will. He's saying he's, he, he works out those things and the little things, the little things in your life, my little life, your little life, us little sort of insignificant, insignificant on a world stage kind of thing. I mean, I don't know how many followers you have on Instagram, but it's probably not 8 to 10 million people. That's how we judge whether someone is important these days or not, right? Every single part of our life is mapped out according to God's will. Now this raises a question, a very obvious question. What does that do to my choices? What does that do to my decisions. Like, does this mean that I am just some kind of, of, of robot? Am I not responsible for my actions if God is, is making everything happen according to his will? How in the world do, do, do you hold me responsible for the things that I do? Because it's all mapped out ahead of time. I had oatmeal for breakfast. God mapped that out ahead of time. Am I, is, that, is that really a decision that I made or am I just some kind of robot? robot. Do you know what a paradox is? A, a paradox is something that seems self-contradictory or impossible or absurd but actually isn't. 
So for example, uh, George Hegel, who is a, a uh, historian, he said that um, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Isn't that a cool, pithy little statement? That's a paradox, okay? Or uh, there's a famous book uh, called Catch-22. Great book. I read it, actually. And it's, it's about this guy uh, who is in the, uh, in the Air Force during World War II, and he does not want to fly as a bomber over Europe and drop bombs over Europe because it's very, very dangerous. And so he says, what I have to do in order to not fly is I have to be insane. I have to act like I'm insane so that I won't have to fly on these missions. However, the way that he demonstrates that he's insane is he's got to be willing to fly on these missions. And so it's a paradox. It doesn't seem like it makes sense, but it actually does work. And in the Bible, there's a whole bunch of paradoxes, okay? Jesus is 100% human, yet he is 100% divine at the same time. How does, how does someone be 200% or 100% of two things at the same time? The Bible is 100% human and 100% divinely written at the same time. These are paradoxes, meaning these are, are truths that actually exist and are are true, but we can't quite wrap our head around them. For example, uh, the more you give your money away, the more generous you are, this is a biblical principle, the more money you'll have, generally speaking. And one of the Bible's great paradoxes, that is two truths that seem to contradict one another but hold together at the same time is this. God is absolutely sovereign over all things that happen in the universe and yet human beings are 100% responsible for every decision that they make. So we are responsible for our lives yet God, God is sovereign over, our, over all our lives. Now this is, this is a very important pr principle when it comes to thinking about decision making. Remember we're, uh, we're launching into this series about how to make decisions, how to do it biblically, how to do it in a way that is, is pleasing to God. And what I'm going to show you today is, as you wrestle, as every Christian I think when they're reading the Bible, they have to wrestle with this question. How in the world does the, does the sovereignty of God and human responsibility work together? I'm going to try to help you with that this morning by looking at these texts that we read. And we're going to look at two things. We're just basically going to look at that the Bible does teach that they work together. And then secondly, that you and I should be really glad that these things work together. So first of all, that they work together. We're looking at this passage in Acts, right? Uh, and it's part of Peter's prayer. Now, what, what happened is Peter and John were sent to the Sanhedrin, and uh, they were told by the Sanhedrin that they were not allowed to preach this Jesus anymore, and they were finally released, and they go back to the church, and the church meets to pray about this situation that they find themselves in. And Peter, as part of his prayer, he says these words, verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Okay. He's saying 
that human beings are responsible for the crucifixion. And, and notice, he says, Herod, the leader of the Jewish people, Pontius Pilate, the leader of the Gentiles. Then he mentions the Gentiles, and then he mentions the Jews. His point is to say that all these people are equally responsible uh, for the crucifixion of Jesus. But then he goes on in verse 28, and he says, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did what your power and your will decided before hand should happen. Not they did what you knew was going to happen beforehand. It's not like Peter is saying, well, God, because you're God, you know, you can see the future. You're like a, you're like a, a like a prophet, like a psychic. And you can, deter, you can see what's going to happen in the future. No, no, no. He, he uses the language of your power and will. Power. Remember, what is power? We talked about it last time. A definition of power is uh, having the ability to act. These are, these are words that demonstrate agency. God, in other words, orchestrated the crucifixion of his son through the work of these people. Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews. God made it happen. And yet, these people are responsible for causing the crucifixion of Jesus. They're culpable for it. They are guilty of it. Just a couple chapters earlier in Acts, in chapter uh, 2, verse 23, Peter says this, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, That's a moral judgment, isn't it? If I say to you, John, you're a wicked man, I'm saying something about your morality. All of you, I picked John because he is one of the least wicked men I know. (laughs) And I know you all know that about John, so it was a safe bet to point to him. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You put him to death. You did this. You're responsible. You're culpable. You're guilty for this action. And so, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we have free will to make decisions, and yet, everything is determined by God at the same time. Now, to us human beings, that does not compute That does not make sense. We think it's either or. We think either everything is predetermined. We're either determinists. Or we think everything is free. And we have absolute and total free will to do everything, anything and everything we want without outside influences. So either God controls absolutely everything and we are robots. Or we are free to choose and determine our own destiny. Everything is fated. And so who cares what's happening in the world because your freedom to choose and decide is really just an illusion or you have freedom to make every decision and determine your future and there is nothing that is uh, guiding or directing you from the outside. Now, it's interesting that throughout history uh, you can see these two extremes believed and popularized depending on the culture that you find yourself in. So, for example, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, 
They believed in the former. They believed in determinism. They believed in fate. They believed that everything was determined. No matter how hard you try to avoid a fixed outcome, it was going to happen. It was most popularized by um, a, a story written by Sophocles. He was an ancient Greek writer. He wrote something called Oedipus Rex. Anybody here have heard at least of Oedipus Rex? Okay, so Oedipus Rex is a story about the king of Thebes, city in Corinth, or sorry, city in Greece. He has a son, Oedipus, and he has a prophecy given to him that says that his son is going to grow up and kill him and take his throne away from him. So he says, well, I don't want that to happen. So what he does is, is he has both his baby's legs broken and he has him discarded to die. But a shepherd comes upon his baby, Oedipus, rescues him, brings him to the king of Corinth, another uh, city in Greece, and the boy is raised as the king's son, and the boy thinks he's a king's son. Now, when he becomes an adult, he uh, goes to the oracle of Delphi, and the oracle tells him, you are going to kill your father and marry your mother. How's that for a prophecy on your life, hey? And he, of course, freaks out, wigs out, and says, "Ah, that's the last thing I want to happen. And so he does everything in his power to avoid that outcome. Now, of course, he thought he was the son of the king of Corinth. But in the end, what happens? He kills the king of Thebes and he marries his mother. And the point of the story is, is that you cannot escape fate. You cannot escape it, so don't even try. That's how the ancients understood things. Now, that's not our problem so much as modern people. We don't believe in fate and determinism and all that kind of stuff because we believe and we value as a culture this idea that if you want to be a truly authentic human being what needs to happen is you need to be free to choose your identity that's where all our our emphasis on human rights uh, comes from Uh, We think of abortion rights, we think of marriage rights, we think of uh, uh, right to die rights, like dying with dignity rights, these kinds of rights. They come from this notion that that we believe that that we determine everything ourselves. And, And Oedipus Rex is a classic example of determinism. Well, there's a classic example of this way of thinking as well, and it comes from that wonderful film, Back to the Future. How many of you have heard of Back to the Future? Interesting, more hands go up for Back to the Future than Oedipus Rex. No, that's not, that's not a surprise at all. Well, Doc Brown, he says to Marty, he says, your future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. You can, you can hear him saying it if you've watched that movie. In other words, the future is utterly undetermined and it is completely determined by your free choices. The future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. It's dependent upon you and your actions to ensure that there is is joy in your future and fulfillment and and happiness, etc. The Bible says both are wrong or both are right. (laughs) The Bible says you make meaningful choices that matter, absolutely. But the end, he said, the Bible says, the end is fixed by God. Look at these Old Testament verses that Tracy read Uh, So, she read from uh, Proverbs chapter 16. Look at verse 1. It says, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. And then in verse 9, it says, In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Now, 
Because of that word but, you might hear these, these verses and think to yourself, well, you know, it sounds like, like human freedom and God's sovereignty are sort of at odds with, another, with, with each other, right? So verse 9, I'll, I'll say it again. Uh, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. In other words, you can make all the plans you want, but it's God who's going to direct your steps and direct your life. And that's not what these passages are saying. What they're saying is, is that human beings plan. In their hearts, human beings plan their course. They make decisions. They decide. They, they make choices. And some of those choices are good, and some of those choices are bad. And you need to be accountable for those choices. Absolutely. But, so, basically you're free, right? But it's saying that God nevertheless will guarantee the ultimate outcome. The Lord will ultimately determine the steps. And he talks about that in terms of thoughts. That's verse 1, from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. And with respect to actions, that's verse 9, the Lord establishes their steps. And, and, and it means that he governs absolutely everything to fulfill his purposes, even evil. Verse 4, we read that too, and it says in verse 4, the Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked, for a day of disaster. So these things are all true at the same time. They're 100% true at the same time. It's not 60-40, like it's not like, you know, you're 60% free to make your decisions and God is 40% meddling and controlling you to make decisions he wants you to make or, or even flip it the other way around. God is 60% in charge of things and you're 40% in charge of things. No, it's 100% and 100%. And the biblical authors, they have no problem holding these two things up together at the same time. That doesn't mean they don't struggle with understanding the events of history. It doesn't mean they don't struggle with the things that happen to them in their lives. Read the book of Job. The man suffers tremendously and the vast majority of the book is him going to God and saying, I don't get it. Sorry, I always forget that this thing, I shouldn't slap it like that. Uh, he's always going, I don't get it. Most of the, the book is about him going to God and saying, I don't understand. Why would you let this happen to me? So I'm not saying that the Bible says it's easy to live with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility held up together at the same time. I'm just saying that they have no problem doing it. And it's not unreasonable, friends. You know, uh, Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century scientist and theologian. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant man. And you know what he said? He said that reason's last step is to recognize that there are an infinite number of things beyond it. Reason's last step is to realize that there are an infinite number of things that lie beyond it, meaning it is utterly reasonable for us to use our reason and our logic to try to understand things as best we can, but one of the most reasonable things for us as human beings to do is to admit that there are things that are beyond our reasonable ability to understand them. Did you know that water, hot water, freezes faster than cold water. And science does not know why. Now, if you're like really good at science and you know what I just said is not true, just keep it under your hat. This is what the internet told me. 
And I tried to verify as many times as I could, and every time, like from some pretty reputable websites, even Snopes didn't discredit it, hot water freezes more quickly than cold water. And I know that that's somewhat true, because I've done that, you know, when it's like 20, minus 20 out, and you take a, a cup of really hot water, and you throw it in the air, and somebody videos you and puts it up on TikTok. And it freezes, and that's like super cool. And then everybody in the United States says, oh, those poor Canadians living where it's so cold all the time, look at what they have to live with. If you do that with cold water, it doesn't freeze the way it does if you do it with hot water. I know there's a scientific answer somehow to it. But it's an illogical answer in the sense that if you were try to intuitively make a guess of how it should happen, it wouldn't happen that way. I'll give you another one. This one may not be quite as good, but, it, and I, but I just found it out this morning, so I haven't had time to think it through. Uh, Eric... Uh, is, a, a, is, a plot, is applying to be a firefighter. And one of the things he had to do is he had to get a heart test. He gets this heart test, and he's told, you got a bad heart. He's like, what? How can I have a bad heart? You have an enlarged left ventricle, and that's a sign of a bad heart. So he's like, I need a second opinion. And so he goes and gets a second opinion. There's a really amazing story behind it all. But anyway, he goes and gets a second opinion. Goes to that doctor, and the doctor says, yeah, sometimes it's a sign of a bad heart but sometimes it's a sign of a really good heart. And it just so happens that for you, it's a sign of a really good heart. This enlarged left ventricle can be the sign of a bad heart or that you're like super athletic in really good shape. Now, how can that be at the same time? There's a scientific reason for it, but the point is we have these intuitive beliefs about the things that we think ought to be a certain way and oftentimes we discover they're not. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. And by the way, he got the job. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, eh? Let me try very, very, very quickly to, to give you an illustration of why this works. God operates sovereignly through our free actions to determine that outcome which he wants. Now, how does that work? Well, here you are, you're in a little village on the savannah, and you and your friends are going to have a potluck. So you set up a table outside all the huts, and uh, you set up your potluck, and you're very excited about it. And then all of a sudden, you hear this roar, and there's a lion coming. And a lion jumps over the little wall that you have around your village, and it starts running towards the potluck, and everybody scatters and runs to their hut, and everybody hides inside their hut, and they start peeking out the window to see what the lion's going to do. And the lion jumps up on the potluck table, and it starts stomping along and, uh, and sniffing all the food that's on this table. And it sees uh, the, you know, that jello mold that someone always brings to these things, that nobody wants, but somebody always feels the need to bring it, and it smacks it out of the way, and it sees a Caesar salad, and it smacks that one out of the way, and it sees a potato salad, and it smacks that out of the way, and then it smells this veggie uh, 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 vegetable vegetarian lasagna, and it smacks that out of the way, and then it comes to the roast pig, and it devours it. Now, none of us are surprised that that has happened. Why? Because the lion is a carnivore. It was able physically, to eat the jello mold. But it does not want the jello mold because it's not acting according to its nature. And so, in a sense, its decision to eat the pork, the, 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 the pig, the roasted pig, is determined. And yet, it was still a free choice. 
And it's in that way, similar to that. I got a whole bunch of these, these illustrations, but I got to move on. It's in that way that, that our responsibility for our free choices are also connected to the determination that God makes for all things to happen according to his will. Now, that's the best I can get you. That's the closest I can get you to it. Another one is to think about how when you're reading a book and somebody murders somebody else in the book and you say, oh, that's terrible. You blame the character that committed the murder. You don't blame the author of the book. That's another way of trying to wrap your head around it. But there's all kinds of ways in which that doesn't quite satisfy our hearts. I understand that. There's mystery here. But please realize this, as Pascal said, reason, right? The ultimate kind of step or the last step of reason is to recognize there are things that are beyond our reason. There is a mystery here, but as we say all the time in Grace Valley Church, or all the time, but we say it enough times, mystery is not the absence of meaning, it is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. We have to believe in the finitude of our minds. We stretch them as far as we can, but we've got to understand there is a finitude to our minds as well. Now, that's what the Bible teaches. Why? Why is it good news? Why is it good news? Well, here's why it's good news. First of all, if everything is predetermined and your choices don't matter, that actually leads to what's called fatalism, you know? It leads to you getting up in the morning and thinking that life really, your choices don't matter, you don't have any agency, uh, everything is, is planned out, etc. You become passive, you become bored, you may even become indifferent and cynical about life. Like, ah, eh, why bother trying? It's all going to f- happen the way God wants it to anyway. In 2010, Jessica and I went to Africa, East, uh, West Africa, uh, to do some missionary work for a period of time. And while we were there, the missionaries who were working there talked to us about a form of Islam there. I'm not saying that this is what all Islam is like, but the form of Islam there was extremely fatalistic, it was very deterministic. It said that everything's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen, regardless of what you try to do. And therefore, the, uh, the Muslims there were, were stuck in their, their socioeconomic circumstances because they didn't believe that they could do anything to actually improve their situation. So that's an illustration of how fatalism can have an extremely negative effect on how you live your life. Your life will be empty and meaningless because you can't produce any meaning. Now our problem in our Western culture is not so much fatalism, our problem is freedom. To us everything is, freedom is everything. Being able to be an authentic human being means I have to have the freedom to make my choices about what matters and about how I want to live and about what is important, etc. But here's the thing. If Doc Brown is right, remember Doc Brown? What did he say? The future is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. If he's right, you should be terrified to get out of bed in the morning. Because that means that everything is up to you. It means that if you want to have a good meaningful, fulfilling, successful life. It is all up to you and your choices and make sure you make the right ones. Don't screw it up. And we all know that if you, if you okay, we shouldn't say we all know. If you live past the age of 30, all right, you become very, very certain and knowledgeable of the fact that you simply can't make that happen. You can't make sure that you always make the right choices in life. It's impossible. When I was 16 years old, 
I was a pretty insecure teenager, and I wanted to be cool. And I, I kind of had my heart set on a certain group of guys that I thought if I, if I was in with those dudes, I'd be cool in school. Not like those fools. And they were all gearheads. They were all into cars. Now, I was not into cars, but I faked it. I bought myself a Hot Rod magazine uh, uh, subscription, and I read it, uh, I read it quite uh, religiously. And uh, I started looking for my first car. I'm 16, and I, I got my heart set on a 1967 Firebird with a 350 big block. Yeah, those of you, my son knows what I'm talking about, and, and it means something to him. It means nothing to me. I just know these numbers because that's what I was after. Very powerful car, very beautiful car. About two days before the deal was going to be made, the guy reneged on the deal and he said, I'm not selling it to you. And I was devastated. I was so angry because I thought that if I had that car, then I would be in with the cool kids. And I was very, very disappointed. And you know, it didn't even take five years for me to look back on that and say, wow, did I ever just avoid a massive disaster by not getting that car? I probably would have killed myself. Too much horsepower for me to handle. It would have been a money pit. I was not mature enough, nor did I have the interest really underneath it all to do that. I probably would have killed myself in that car. Thank God I didn't get it. That was a really, really bad decision I was making, and God protected me from it. Thank you, Lord. Now, here's the thing. When I was 16 years old, I was making all kinds of decisions. And probably 75% of those decisions were bad decisions. And maybe 25% of those were good decisions. You might say, well, yeah, that's because you were young and, and everybody does foolish, young, uh, silly things when they're young. Sure, now I'm middle-aged and, and hopefully I'm a little wiser, a little older, a little more able to make good decisions. So now what's the ratio? Maybe it's 75 good 25 bad, there's a lot that can still go wrong when 25% of your decisions suck. Here's my point. If you think it through, who in their right mind wants to live in a universe where the outcome of their life is totally determined by their choices? You want to live with that kind of pressure? That would be hell on earth. Because if it's all on you, what happens if you make the wrong call? You go to the wrong school. You, you enter the wrong program. You go after the wrong career. You meet the wrong person. And then you marry the wrong spouse. Ah! You're guaranteeing yourself a life of constant anxiety and possibly depression. Because none of us, we can't bat a thousand. None of us can bat a thousand. If you can bat 700, by the time you're 70, you're doing pretty well in terms of your ability to make the best decisions. The beauty of this biblical picture of God superintending over our decisions for his glory and our good is that it enables you to relax. What does God want from you well, where he commands, very clearly in the Bible, he wants you to obey. And where he doesn't, he wants you to be wise. Because your choices do matter. There are consequences. If you make a bad investment, you will lose money. And yet, God is in control of all things. And he will make all things right in 
the end. He will use all your decisions, even the bad ones, to work out His ultimate purpose. And His ultimate purpose is His glory through your salvation. You hear that? His glory through your salvation. You know what God's ultimate purpose is not? That you have a big house and a big pension and can go on vacations and have lots of grandkids to have over to play at your house and for you to always just be happy. That's not his ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose is his glory through your salvation. And he will work all things together to make that happen. And therefore, you can relax. Look, look at Jesus in the garden, friends. There he is before going to the cross and he prays. He says, Lord, please let there be another way. If there's another way to bring about their salvation, please let us do it. But there wasn't another way. And the reason there wasn't was another way was because God had determined that Jesus would have to die to pay the penalty for sins. And he told us this in Isaiah 53 verse 10 when he said it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And so Jesus made the choice to submit to the cross. He said in that prayer, not my will be done but yours. And you might say, well, how on earth is that choosing? If it was predetermined and Jesus knew it was predetermined, how did he choose? Well, you know, Jesus explains it himself in John chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, he says this, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have, author- I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. In Jesus' own life, we see the perfect blend of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And what did God work that all out for? Well, he says in Philippians 2, One day, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every name will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father, His glory. So, friends, chillax. Anybody use that word anywhere? Or just like people so out of touch and behind like me? Chillax. Understand that that God loves you and has a plan for your life, but that's a plan that He knows and you discover. Not before the events of your life happen, but as they unfold. And be wise. And you ask, well, how do I be wise? I'm glad you asked. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that you are so gracious to allow us freedom and yet protect us from ultimately screwing up our lives so bad that we lose the ultimate purpose, which is your glory through our salvation. Help us to see the value of our salvation. Help us to see how wonderful it is to know that you are working all things in our lives to accomplish that salvation and to bring about your glory in it. And there's so much wrapped up in all of this that we haven't had a chance to, to 
unravel together and unpack together. But we pray, Lord, that you will give us the, the peace that comes not from knowing all our decisions are great, but the peace that you provide that comes from knowing you are at work using our decisions to work out good for us and glory for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.